Imagine the following scenario. You are in bed one night, when suddenly you are awakened. There's an unknown person standing in your room. He or she tells you they're an angel sent from the Lord. And calling you by name, they tell you that you've been chosen as a prophet to warn the world that Jesus is coming back this December. Would you assume this is an angel from God and that the message is true? Or is it possible that this is a messenger of Satan? And how would you know the difference? Let's get into it. Welcome to Teacher in Zion Podcast. This is Doug Haddon. You know, God's people must walk by faith, not unbelief. You know, we don't want to be filled with doubt or fear or be afraid to move out when the Spirit is telling us to. And having said that, though, it is vitally important that we acknowledge that not every voice we hear, nor every thought that we think or feeling that we receive is from God. There are many voices out there that can mimic the voice of the Spirit, the most powerful of which is the religious spirit. I've had a number of experiences with the religious spirit over the years, and it is very prevalent in works-orientated religions or churches, so guess what? Definitely in Mormonism. I have experienced the effects of this spirit working through other people, and I have also operated by that spirit myself at a time, believing it to be God. In case you aren't familiar with the religious spirit, it's a very powerful entity, possibly a principality. It influences a person or group of people to replace a genuine relationship with God with works and traditions. One of the hallmarks of people operating out of the religious spirit is they will try to earn salvation. Rules become more important than people. They will pressure others to keep the letter of the law, yet violate the very heart of it. This spirit has also been known to twist scriptures and establish many beliefs and customs unsupported by the word of God and thereby maintain a powerful hold over people for generations. As a disciple of Jesus, we need our eyes open to the nature of the religious spirit, for it is always lurking. Uh, It may even preside over an entire denomination or movement. And those who are influenced by that spirit tend to judge others and rob believers of their liberty in Christ. The religious spirit does its best to imitate the work of the Holy Spirit. And from personal experience, I will testify that it does a very good job of it. 
until you become familiar with how it works, this spirit can sound and feel just like the Holy Spirit, except for the slightest taint. And that taint can be very hard to detect for many people. Despite the strong delusion this spirit weaves in the minds of its victims, the truth of its nature will ultimately be revealed in the fruit that it bears. The religious spirit can never produce the fruits of the spirit as described in Galatians. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Even so, this spirit can cause great confusion and deception, giving a person a sense of false humility and also a false sense of peace for a time. Nevertheless, when doing the bidding of this spirit, those who are spiritually sensitive may feel an unease or a troubling feeling deep down in their subconscious. This is the spirit of Christ within you trying to draw your attention to the fact that there is something wrong. Sadly, the adversary will also try to teach you that this troubling feeling is only a doubt in opposition to faith. For this reason, we must always allow ourselves the liberty to question something and go to God with honest inquiries for the sake of getting free of such deceptions. Those who work in a religious spirit are often defending the faith and tend to be believing that they are to defend the flock. And so they're always on the outlook for wolves in sheep's clothing and trying to put anyone out of the church as quickly as possible or denounce someone who believes a little differently than they do. The religious spirit is a very powerful grip on people and they believe that they are defending the faith, protecting the sheep, but it's not the spirit of love. It's not the spirit of Christ. The scriptures tell us that Satan and his fallen angels can masquerade as a messenger from God. Some have even been known to pretend to be Jesus himself. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-14 And so for all the reasons we have just talked about, it is vital that we take every thought captive to examine it carefully. Second uh, Corinthians 10.5 We must try the spirits and seek confirmation for our spiritual experiences. It has been recorded that Joseph Smith once said, Nothing is of greater injury to the children of men than to be under the influence of a false spirit when they think they have the Spirit of God. Well, that's truth. Unfortunately, I need to address a mistaken belief that entered into the institutional church, which was also attributed to Joseph Smith, though I cannot confirm it. Published in the LDS version of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a revelation that states that if a spirit appears to you, you should ask it to take your hand. If it can do so, then it is an angel, which this revelation states are resurrected beings. 
Therefore, they have a physical body. And Satan and his fallen angels then presumably do not have a physical body, so they cannot take your hand. And if, therefore, this messenger can take your hand, it can be trusted. Unfortunately, this is pure speculation on someone's part and has no scriptural basis. First off, not all angels are resurrected beings, obviously. A third of the angels fell, and the other two-thirds kept their station in heaven, and none of those angels are, or were, ever human, as far as we know. The whole notion of resurrected beings ministering to men is a Mormon doctrine that basically exists due to the story about a restored priesthood being bestowed by resurrected beings. As I previously talked about, there is no record of, nor any remembrance of John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John appearing by any of the first elders of the church, nor the membership of the church, or from Joseph's family in their correspondence or in their personal journals. No one ever wrote about it, nor was it ever spoken of by anyone in the church for the first five to six years. It wasn't until 1834, after the church and Joseph Smith's authority came under attack in printed media, that a rebuttal was printed that hinted that Joseph had received authority from some unnamed angel. And after that, the story began to grow. And eventually, the claim was made of an Aaronic priesthood and later a Melchizedek priesthood being bestowed by resurrected beings. But up until that point, the only angel Joseph ever interacted with or told his family or anyone in the church about was Moroni in regards to the plates. And that's it. And Moroni was depicted as an angel. The word angel in Hebrew and Greek simply means messenger. Being that Moroni was a messenger from God, the word angel fits perfectly well. But whether he was a resurrected being has not been established by any evidence that I can find. Angels aren't necessarily men who once lived. There are many kinds of angels, and some may appear to men. The Lord placed a cherubim at the east side of the Garden of Eden, and there had never been any other men who lived before Adam, so this was not some resurrected man or any kind of man at all. But if an angel is a non-human angel, like the third who fell, and the two-thirds who remained in heaven, does that mean they are not physical? While their bodies are not the same flesh as mankind, uh, not being bound by the same terrestrial laws as we are, and not subject to sickness or death, the scriptures would appear to show angels to have a physical body. In various places, they are depicted as being able to eat and drink. At one point, an angel wrestles with Jacob, uh, and then one took up a sword and slew 180,000 Assyrian soldiers. That seems very physical to me. And there is nothing to suggest that when Satan and his angels were thrust out of heaven, 
that they became disembodied somehow. I believe people may be confusing the fallen angels with disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, perhaps, that died in the flood, uh, what some might call demons. And it is my belief that these are the spirits that can inhabit or possess a person and that they may be lesser beings than the fallen angels themselves. But whatever your thoughts on Nephilim and on fallen angels, the belief that angels are not physical actually has no scriptural basis at all. And therefore, we should not put our trust in such speculation. Angels, both angels of God as well as the fallen angels, are essentially interdimensional beings. I think is one way you could look at it. As such, they can show themselves or they can remain unseen. This is similar to the change that was wrought in the three Nephites who never died. Therefore, they are not resurrected beings, but they can decide to show themselves to us or not. Angels may interact with humans or wage war in the spiritual realm all around us, but be completely undetected except for where someone is able to exercise a gift of discernment. They can pass through walls. This does not by any means indicate that angels are disembodied spirits. Instead, it indicates that they operate according to their own unique nature, not being tied to the same terrestrial laws that humanity is bound to. If an angel appears to us, how do we know that it is an angel? And how would we know if it's an angel of God or a fallen angel? I know a man who joined himself with a deception and with a false prophet, with claims of newly reconstituted church with exclusive authority. He was offered a title of apostle by this prophet and he later reported that one day, while he was in a gas station bathroom, a stranger said something about him having a work to do. Presuming the man to be an angel, he accepted this as confirmation that he should accept this lofty position. And this is a very real problem I see among the saints. For too often we are seeking confirmation for something that really we desire deeply in our heart to be true and therefore jump on any potential validation that will come along and, and we'll never look back, never question, never second guess, never need a second confirmation, let alone a third. Seldom do I hear of someone questioning whether their spiritual experiences is even from God. Satan can appear as an angel of light and yet some guy muttering a few highly nonspecific words in a public bathroom is seen as sufficient witness. Sufficient witness to imagine that you are called as an apostle to this prophet and this church that has authority above all other peoples, that you are the one true church. And this gives me very little hope if a time should come when Satan's workers appear even as an angel of light, would someone even bother to stop and question it? You know, so long as the message sounded good to them, they're going to take it. They're going to run with it. It is written that Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. 
over the years, having seen many good, well-intentioned people in their desire to serve God, manage to become deceived, myself included. I must therefore conclude that we must learn to distinguish his voice from all others by a process of experiences. Just as importantly, we need to examine ourselves and question our own motives as to whether there is some part of us that deeply desires something to be true and whether that desire might suppress our discernment or open us up for possible deception. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 Foremost among the tools we need to rely on to successfully navigate deceptions are the foundational books of Scripture God gave us specifically for the confounding of false doctrines, which would be the Bible and the Book of Mormon together. It is not the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not the Pearl of Great Price. While God may speak to men, and many revelations may be received, God told us that we were to rely on the things that were written in those two records, especially the Book of Mormon. My grandfather was the most righteous spiritual man I have ever known in the church or anywhere on this earth. He was a patriarch and a minister of Christ's love to many people. I recall his often repeated testimony regarding the numerous times when he had a question for God, how the Holy Spirit would often say, it is written. And he took this to understand that that meant he was to search the scriptures. And in searching them, he would soon discover the answer. And the Holy Spirit would then confirm that answer. Over the years, I discovered the wisdom that the scriptures, without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, leads to legalism. I've seen people read and teach from the New Testament, but with an Old Testament heart. And the administration of such teaching is death. At the same time, I have observed that those who tend to disregard or treat lightly the written word in order to just follow the spirit ultimately do not even know what spirit they are following and become very susceptible to deception. Both Lehi and his son Nephi had a vision of a rod of iron that led to the tree of life. In the vision, a mist arose and everyone lost their way. Everyone lost their way, except for those who held fast to the rod. This rod represented the word of God. And what I have concluded after many years of pondering and having experiences uh, and failures and also victory in coming to truth is that the rod of iron is the combination of both the written word and the voice of the Spirit, working in concert to reveal deceptions and keep us on the right path. It is also important that we never forget that the rod, which is the Word of God, is Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh, and by Him was everything created that was created, 
both in heaven and in earth. May we cling to him as the written word. Cling to him in the voice of the Spirit, keeping both of these in proper balance. If we disregard what is written, we are lost. And if we hold to the written word but do not have the Spirit, we are soon trapped in dead religion and can easily become Pharisees. God is Spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 I would like to conclude this podcast by sharing some red flags to watch for that may be an indication of a possible deception. I share these with you from my own personal experience and the experience of others that I have interacted with over the years. Number one, titles. When Satan and his angels mimic God, they love to hand out titles. You have been chosen as his apostle or as his prophet, for example. He will tell you that you are special above other people that you alone have found favor with God because of how righteous you are, because you fast more than other people, or because you keep the Sabbath, etc. The reasons may sound scriptural, but the fruit of it is an appeal to ego. Number two, subverting the gospel. Satan's ministers are always trying to subvert the gospel. They do this in a variety of subtle and not-so-subtle ways, depending on what they think they can get away with. They may try to take away some part of the gospel, for example, that you don't have to love sinners. They may try to make an exception to the gospel, like telling you that you can seek retribution against an enemy in certain cases. They may try to add to the gospel, telling you that you must observe some dietary restriction or teach additional doctrines as a requirement that Jesus himself never taught. They may try to reinterpret simple teachings of Jesus in order to transform them into some secret doctrine. One real-life example of this is when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. One particular false prophet from Brazil teaches that this means we must be reincarnated, living multiple lives on this earth in order to progress spiritually. Number three, resting scripture. An evil spirit will lead you to overemphasize one or two verses of scripture out of context, while de-emphasizing or altogether ignoring some other scriptures in order to interpret God's word in such a way as to cause us to commit errors in our way of thinking or action. Number four, wrong fruit. Does the message or the revelation fill you with a sense of peace, love, joy, kindness, compassion? Or does it fill you with dread or fear? Or perhaps it fills you with a judgmental attitude? Or especially a sense of self-righteous superiority. Examine the fruit of the message. What is the fruit of it in your heart or in your life or in the life of others? Does it match what we find in Galatians 5, 
22 through 23. Number five, itching ear. Is the message something you want to hear? Anytime you believe the Spirit of God is telling you something that deep down in your heart you want to be true, you should immediately be suspicious. It is far less common that what God has to share with us is simply going to line up with exactly what we think. After all, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We can read about that in Isaiah 55, 8-9. through 9. Be particularly suspicious of a revelation if the answer allows us to take the easier path or allows us to do something contrary to what the gospel calls us to do. For example, if we hear from the Spirit that we don't have to reconcile with someone, or that if someone slaps us in the face, we can actually slap them back, often the truth, when we receive it, will feel like a release, but the truth is often something that is hard for us initially. Perhaps something contrary to how we've been taught according to our tradition would say make sure you question any voice that encourages you to let go of the Bible and the Book of Mormon so that you can do according to the desires of your own heart. Go to God and ask him that if you've been deceived to correct you. Be open to that correction. Wait for additional confirmation. God said he would always send additional witnesses. Finally, Seek counsel from trusted sources, those who you know that won't simply agree with you, but love you enough to even speak the truth. It is impossible to convey all of the ways that we can be deceived, but if we will hold fast to the rod of iron and be sure that what you are holding to is indeed the rod of iron. And for me, that is primarily going to be the Bible and especially the Book of Mormon. And these things must be in concert with the voice of the Holy Spirit. And above all, stay humble and continually be open to correction. Do not be afraid to question something. Even if you think it came from the Spirit, God has broad shoulders and he can take it. He wants us to question. When we do so, we're not questioning him, we're questioning ourselves to discover if perhaps we've been deceived, did we misunderstand something. Make sure the voice we are hearing is indeed his voice. It isn't his desire for us to be susceptible to deception. So ask, seek, and knock. And if something you receive doesn't make sense or feels off, or appears to contradict scripture, or appeals to your ego, or is exactly what your heart desired and maybe causes you to ignore some of the scriptures in our core books of scripture, then you better stop and check things out. Do some studying and pray about it, and don't be afraid to ask others for help. Get input. Go to God and wait upon him. And if I haven't completely offended you yet, I hope you will join us next week. Until then, God bless.